previously on Storyological. <laughs> it was a very, I thought, profound thing that you shared with me about your reading of the Griefworks book about the description in there of people who maybe were going through some traumatic incident, but I don't remember how you put it, but it was like their, the models of love they had had as children were solid or robust in some way. And so even through pain and loss, they didn't forget how to love. The book is a bunch of case studies around people who are experiencing grief. And this one particular couple she described in this way as not as yeah, as not having fault lines that run through them. And I found it to be such a clear way of thinking and feeling like, oh, I have this fault line that runs through me that I run into somewhere between always and every now and again, you know, that has that has shaped the way I lived. And I felt wildly jealous of these two people that didn't have it. Mm -hmm. And also like a bit protective of myself, like, and also a bit sad, like, I don't want I don't want it to be there. But I also mm -hmm. think, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I enjoyed how it gave me some language to think about it. To think about how it exists and also what effect it has. Yeah, there was this, um, this movie I watched called Take This Waltz, which I think as I have told you and now I am telling the entire world of our listeners is not a movie I unreservedly love. And that's not one of your powerful de double negatives, is it? That just means you're like, you love it, but you have some reservations. I love Michelle Williams. I love some of its descriptions of sadness. <laughs> I love some moments and framing of the film. I find the way some of the characters to be written so poorly and so poorly presented that it really undercuts the the theme and argument it is making and the quote i'm thinking of is near the end there's a uh, character played by sarah silverman and she's an alcoholic and she has uh relapsed and uh she crashes into the final scenes in which michelle williams has left the person she was with which was seth rogan they had had a relationship but all he did was cook chicken all of the time and she decided she wanted more than chicken but so she wanted more than chicken with Lenny Bruce, who is not really Lenny Bruce. That's just the name of the character that that actor <laughs> that plays, plays on Mrs. Maisel. <laughs> but he is so underwritten. All I think of him as in this movie, Take This Waltz, is, oh, there's Lenny Bruce being a slightly different person. And Sarah Silverman is the sister of Seth Rogen's character. Mm -hmm. And she is telling Michelle Williams that, Michelle, you are just... <laughs> Uh, I really go in and out of calling people by their character name, the actor name, the name of it's another fine. character it's they played. It's completely fluid. It's totally fluid. It. Yep. It's all it's all loose in my head. She's saying, Michelle, you're you're just like me. You're an alcoholic. You're trying to fix something in life. And the thing you're trying to fix is unsolvable. And every solution you throw at the problem will disappear. And the way Sarah Silverman puts it is there is a gap in life that cannot be closed. And the things you do to try to close that gap will disappear inside of the gap. And one, I love that line uh, because it's true. Two, I thought, uh, in the context of this story, this is the first time Michelle Williams has ever taken a drink. So I'm not sure the metaphor holds. And three, I thought, wait, when you were telling me about the fault line, and feeling like it was something you had discovered that maybe had always been there, but it was something you had only reckoned with recently about the difficulty for those of us 
perhaps all of us, who are broken in some way, in more or less um, tectonic ways, Mm -hmm. of understanding what is the gap in us that we need to fill, that we need to work on, and what is the gap in life that is permanent, that there is no way to solve, and that we we need to make peace with that gap. And there may be gaps in us that we have to make peace with. Uh, And conflating or confusing the two is a path to unhappiness. Right, yeah, yeah. Just Um, chucking things into the void would just get chewed up. Yes. I think in a way that the the, the gap in us, the the fault lines in us, may separate us from life. Mm. And so if we stand on one side of that gap and think this is what life is, we miss everything on the other side. And it can be amazing to find through therapy or through connection, through art, to find a bridge that will take you across the gap in yourself to life. But eventually, once you get to life... There's going to be another gap. <laughs> there, are, there are more gaps. Uh, yeah, there's going to be more gaps along the way. And that's when you sit with someone else and you dangle your feet over the abyss uh-huh. and you tell stories because what else are you going to do? There's just this empty abyss and there's this strange, in my, there's this kind of, I think of roadworks <laughs> vehicle coming towards you with a really wide kind of, uh, what do you call it? Uh, really wide. Plow? Yeah, like a snowplow. Eventually, it's going to push you into the abyss. Right. There's no, there's no avoiding it. It's really an infinite snowplow coming for you. Yeah, right. And I think the only, the only successful bridges that I have found to step over those gaps and those abyssi, I don't know what the plural of abyss is. <laughs> well, if only James Cameron had made a sequel to The <laughs> Abyss and we could say, well, I guess we would just call them The Abyss films, but... Um, right, it's stories, whether it's like fiction stories or stories that you tell yourself about your life and who you are or... <laughs> almost never fiction. Well, <laughs> they're almost never fiction. Yeah. Right, that's how you make sense of it. This is Storylogical, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick for season four premiere da, 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 is Sweet on the Tongue by Roxanne Gay. Uh, in her collection, Aiti. Okay, so this story is a lot. It contains a lot of trauma, and in particular, it contains a rape. So I wanted to put that at the front in case um, it influences anybody's desire to listen to this discussion. The way I want to talk about this story is very much wrapped up in its structure and the way that it tells the story of the main character. I forget her name. I think it's only mentioned once. Oh, yeah. It's one of those characters that is the narrator to me. Yeah, the narrator. Yeah, or you slash (laughs) I. So it opens with the narrator visiting her grandmother on some unnamed Caribbean island, which I assume is Haiti, given that's the name of the collection. A place she hasn't been for years, and, and it opens with a kind of awkward friendly but uncomfortable flirtation that develops between her and Maria, her grandmother's nurse. And it's a flirtation that she slides away from and into the story of her marriage to a man named Campbell. And the the story of her relationship with Campbell is interwoven with the story of her evening with Maria and their dinner and, and their sharing, or their not too much sharing of themselves with e- each other. Because toward the end of the evening, as as the narrator is pulling away from Maria, Maria alludes to some awful thing that happened. 
that happened last time the narrator was here on the island. But the the main character silences her. She will not will not get into what happened. And and that's kind of the first thing that I want to talk about of what I enjoyed so much about this story is it's a story that holds itself so close that unspools the history of the main character kind of in the same way that she shares it with the people in her life it's tight it's controlled everything is kept separate and in a safe place until the trauma is ready to be dealt with during this evening with Maria, we learn about Campbell, we learn about her husband, we learn about their flirtation, their joy, their marriage, and then we learn that she was abducted on her honeymoon, kidnapped for ransom in a market a few meters away from her husband. But it takes time before we find out what happened to her. At first, like her family, we just know that she was gone for three days. She keeps us like Campbell, like her family in the dark, she holds that story to herself until she is ready to tell it. And I always admire a story that necessitates being told in a particular way, or where the, where the writer has really understood that the structure delivers more in the story than just the words. And that's what Roxanne has done in the, in the way that she's chosen to unspool this. Yeah, one of the first things I wrote down when I finished the story was, you cannot move forward in the story without going back. And you cannot go back without moving forward. In reading terms, there are eruptions of the past as you move forward that are irritating in a good way, in the way, in in that there are moments where the narrator is with Maria, where they get right next to something, the moment of tension, a moment of release, a moment where something's going to happen. And Roxanne, cuts hard into the past and to some other thing that makes you want to get back to where you were. But respecting the way stories work, you read through the past Mm -hmm. to get there. There's no other way to do it. And And I love the feeling that really, even though in the story you're going back, you're going back in time, you're going through the past, you are, of course, just moving from one page to the next. You are moving forward as you talk about the past. You're not actually stuck. You're not actually cycling and part of that sounds metaphorically resonant of course that's the way it feels to me and the way Roxanne does it is the story of the past is progressing as you say it is getting deeper and deeper there's a different way to write this story where someone hasn't processed the trauma at all and the past seems disjointed or going in circles whereas here it is more or less a story that pulls you deeper and deeper right it goes you it goes deeper and deeper and it's only so as it pulls us deeper, it is only after we understand that she became pregnant after the rape and that she or they, she and Campbell decided to give the baby up for adoption, but that she couldn't do it after she held her son. Only after we understand that she and Campbell are now ready to make another baby, that this is where we get the story of what happened when we understand that she is she is moving on and it is visceral and it is nasty and it was relentless and it is only two pages but when i reread the story i did not reread those two pages i was like i think one time is enough for that Hmm. yeah we hear it when campbell hears it after the birth when she realizes that it won't affect the way she loves her son or she hopes she hopes that it never does right yeah right 
Well, she says something like, uh, "I thought it would. I thought it would affect the way that I love him, but it doesn't." Yeah, so, yeah. So she's in that moment. She doesn't yes. know about the future exactly. for sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we're reading from the future though, where she says when he comes to visit at the end in this time where she's been with Maria and been mm. with her dying grandmother, she says it still hasn't, and she hopes that it doesn't. One of the the most solid and comforting things in this story, a thing that, for example, that I do not find in Safety Not Guaranteed, which is a reckoning, that, that kind of line, that kind of split, where in the moment where she's had the child and she just thinks this will not affect it, versus in the future where she has doubt but still hopes, that feels comfortingly honest. I am... In real life, I find it very uncomfortable to be around people that don't seem to be reckoning with something. And when I read Roxane Gay, I feel like I'm in the presence of someone whose characters have reckoned right. and continue to reckon. And even if they've moved on, it hasn't been through a process of negligence, let's yeah. say. And every story in the collection is full of that reckoning. It is something that runs deep in her writing i haven't i haven't really read anything of hers before i just happened to see this you know facing out on a shelf in pages of hackney and i was like oh oh i've always wanted to read roxane gay i'm gonna get that i'm just gonna read it and i just sat down and read the whole thing in the after same afternoon and i want to get her other collections and her other essays they are deeply painfully wonderful do you want to write her a letter? <laughs> write her a fan letter. I have never done that. I would feel too embarrassed, I think. Reading the story made me think about a quote that is quoted in Before Sunrise by Ethan Hawke's character. There's a moment near the end of Before Sunrise. These two people have spent the night walking and talking about everything meaningless and profound in the world and in their lives. And they're sitting on the steps of a fountain as the sun rises, and Ethan Hawke begins to intone in this ridiculous deep voice, this kind of... Uh, and Julie Delpy's character is like, what are you doing? And he says, well, I don't remember now, but there's some actor that was reading W.H. Auden's poems that mm -hmm. he used to listen all the time as a child, and he'd memorize some of it. And I looked up the poem, and he kind of memorizes it. He, he <laughs> kind of skips around a bit. And I want to read... I want to read a bit of W.H. Autumn's poem as I walked out one evening. Uh, not in the style that Ethan Hawke reads it, because I don't know if I can maintain that voice <laughs> without laughing. Voice. But I will quote it the way that he quotes it. Yeah. Uh, the years shall run like rabbits, for in my arms I hold the flower of the ages and the first love of the world. But all the clocks in the city began to whir and chime. Oh, let not time deceive you. You cannot conquer time. In headaches and in worry, vaguely life leaks away, and time will have his fancy tomorrow or today. And in the movie Before Sunrise, right, these people know that they're going to have to separate. And his, his uh, intonation of that moment and that poem carries a lot of the, the sadness that this beautiful thing has happened, but time is going to have its fancy with them. They're going to have to part. Of course, we know in the future that they meet again and meet again. But we do see that time has its fancy with them, that there is no way out of it, that those movies, as a lot of Linklater movies, are obsessed with two things, time and love. 
and the relationship between them and the way they have an effect on one another, that, that love shapes how we experience time and time shapes how we experience love. And this story by Roxane Gay, I thought a lot about how that in one way of reading it, it is about the kind of pain that changes the story of your life. It changes how you tell the story. It changes what you tell to other people. It changes how you relate to other people. And in another way, it is about how love over time changes the story of your life. When Campbell first comes into the story, I'm, I don't like him at all. And I don't think I'm supposed to. In a way, he is, he is on the spectrum of aggressive and stalker that later we see the extreme actually horrible like right. Campbell maybe is just problematic and annoying right but he listens to the narrator and mm. changes over time mm -hmm. in the same kind of worrisome but hopeful sweet way that we get in the very first sentence where we learn that the grandmother <laughs> just changed the nurse's name the nurse's name is not Maria that's just what the grandmother has decided to call her but Maria doesn't fight it, she accepts that change. And that accept, in that case, maybe comes from professional care. But these two things are happening. And the story, as you said, that the birth of the child and the love for that is, is a process of time and of love that the narrator just keeps repeating in that scene, I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know. Mm. And I think sometimes we have, we sway back and forth with this cynical view that love can be endless or that it's ridiculous to ever think love can be endless. Mm. But we don't often reckon that pain is the same way, that the way we experience trauma is not necessarily permanent. And time will have its fancy with our pain as it has our fancy with our love. Yeah, it, absolutely. It, it yeah. is the story of her, of her time and her reckoning with this trauma and this pain. One theory of trauma is that the experience is like a piece of paper torn to shreds and that the way uh, and that the mind gets stuck in all those pieces of paper being unable to make sense of it. And so it just sifts through them again and again in fragments and that the way to heal is to pick up and examine each of those tiny shreds of paper and piece it back together to create an image of the experience that you can hold in your mind that you can make sense of so that in making sense of it you can put it down sometimes that it doesn't make it less painful but it just makes it more comprehensible i love that the story concludes with campbell and cj the son flying out to meet the narrator that this is the moment where she is reintegrating the parts of her life that she has kept apart and kept fractured. That to me seems like a representation of that kind of processing. It's like, okay, all of these different parts of my life, I haven't even told my grandmother and my extended family that, that I have a son, but now, now I am ready to hold all of these different parts of me in one image. Yeah. There's a, a line that Campbell says, in the past, in response to the trauma that the narrator has experienced. He says that you are safe with me. The narrator does not believe it, and neither do we really. And it made me think about all the promises we make that we can never keep, and that, that we still make them because, I don't know, maybe it goes back to what we were talking to about sitting at the edge of the abyss, that we cannot help making them because we we cannot accept a world that does not permit us the muddled sweet pain of hope. Um, and that was something 
it feels like it runs through this story that the way words taste in your mouth, the different ways that hope and pain taste, and trying to accept the necessity, trying to accept these different aspects of pain and hope, that one does not erase or replace the other. There's no amount of hope that removes danger or pain from our lives. Mm. But as the narrator finds out, to somewhat their joy, but also confusion that there's no amount of pain that completely erases from your life love and hope. And sometimes that makes it complicated. Right. Right. Because it leaves you with a sense of should or fear or a lack of understanding. I don't, I don't know that we do children any favors by telling them stories where, uh, the good guys and the bad guys are distinguished by the, their white hats and twirly moustaches. You know, it somehow leaves an imprint that that is the way the world works and that when we try to hold on to the reality and the complexity, it feels wrong against that mold that is created. Yeah. And it makes it harder. My pick for this first episode of our fourth season is Parakeet by Kevin Brockmeyer, known by a better name in his collection, which is... A fable ending with the sound of a thousand parakeets. Yeah, so, spoiler. (laughs) Don't read the title of this story in the collection (laughs) that we've already told you. Look out. Here is the first paragraph of Kevin Brockmeyer's story. Once there was a city where everyone had the gift of song. Gardeners sang as they clipped their flowers. Husbands and wives sang each other to sleep at night. Groups of children waiting for the school bell to ring raced through the verses of the latest pop songs to get to the pure sponge sugar of the choruses. Old friends who had not seen each other in many years met at wakes and retirement parties to sing the melodies they remembered from the days when they believed that there was nothing else in the world that would ever grip their spirits so and take them out of their bodies. Life was carried along on a thousand little currents of music, and it was not unusual to hear a tune drifting out from behind the closed door of an office as you passed or even from the small back room of the art museum, which was almost, but never quite empty. The people of the city did not always sing with great skill, but they sang clearly and with a simplicity of feeling that made their voices beautiful to hear. And because they loved what they sang, no matter how painful or melancholy, a note of indomitable happiness ran through their voices like a fine silver thread. My turn, is it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. No, it's not. I just thought you just seemed like you had a, a look on your face where you wanted to say a word or two. Oh my God, I cry every time I read this story. I have read it so many times and it just cuts into my heart, the language. But you go ahead, say the thing you were going to say and I'll try and make some sense out of all my mm. feelings in a minute. I, I did not realize how much this story have been a part of your life and so i will briefly believe i will briefly divert our conversation to discover where how did kevin brockmeyer come into your life where did you read this story first what i think you and carmen were talking about him at uh clarion and i came into clarion knowing nothing about the literary world really and you guys were talking about how amazing it was and how much you thought that I would enjoy him. So I just bought The View from the Seventh Layer. I think that's the name of the collection. Yes. And read it on my Kindle while we were there. And when I first opened it, or when I first 
booted it up. <laughs> the parakeet's story is the first story in the collection, and I didn't even get past it before I reread it. I was just bowled over by the way he used language. I had never, ever felt like that. It felt like sentences could create this cradling beauty that would swing you through the air and life like his sentences do. Yeah, right. And he definitely does that thing where the cradling means that the abyss is there. Right. You know, the, he has to give you the thing that he is cradling you from. And that first paragraph is Kevin Brockmeyer at his clearest and best, where he is saying, because they loved what they sang, mm. no matter how painful or melancholy, there was this indomitable happiness. That is a Kevin Brockmeyer story that you get the feeling that he sees his characters and he sees their impossible sadness and loneliness or melancholy so clearly and so lovingly. And he writes about it with such a song in his voice that mm. no matter how painful or melancholy or lonely or impossible the sadness, there is an indomitable happiness in his stories. To speak somewhat melodramatically, it for a moment soothes the fault line in your soul. It, it puts yeah. things to rest that feel... It sidles up to you and holds your hand and looks up in the sky so that you feel like you want to follow that gaze. That is perfect. I did an interview with Kevin Brockmeyer many years ago in a different part of my life where I was doing my MFA in Mississippi back in 2009. And one of the things we talked about was how what he looks for in fiction, the fiction that he falls in love with, is the fiction that gives him a new way to see the world. Mm. And so listening to you describe that, I think, if Kevin Brockmeyer heard you describing his stories in that way as a giving you a gaze that you wanted to follow, he would feel very proud and happy. Um, we haven't told you anything about the story. <laughs> the, there is a town, everyone can sing. Naturally, as this is a fable, as the actual title in the collection lets you know, there is a character who does not sing. There is a character who is a mute. And this character we learn did not have any particular uh, predilection or skill with instruments. Nor do they really have an absence of song in their bodies. No, not at all. Part of the impossible sadness is they have all of the song that anyone could ever want inside of them, but they can never find the voice or the way to express it. And that is what I mean by, like, perfect impossible sadness. Like, it's just, it's super clear, it is super fably, but there is something so sweetly fragile and impossible about it. There is no way to overcome it. But the character collects parakeets. And these parakeets, of course, have a beautiful song. They have these beautiful iridescent wings. And in the collecting of the parakeets, the, the mute realizes how much he has longed for this companionship, to take care of something with a working voice and a beating heart. And this is another aspect of this story and so many Brockmeyer stories. There's such an evocation of a melancholy or a loneliness that gets paired with such an evocation of the the kind of overwhelming sense of companionship, the, the sense of finding some bond that doesn't, it doesn't change the sadness, but it gives you that fine silver thread to pull you through. Can I read that paragraph? Uh, the paragraph of the, when he understands that companionship. Mm -hmm. It says, It was not until he released the parakeets into his living room and watched them hop from the back of the chair onto the curtain rod and from the curtain rod onto the shelf beside the mirror 
that he felt something slipping loose inside him and realised how much he needed their companionship. And every time I read that phrase, slipping loose inside him, I feel that bridge over my fault line. Yeah. And... <laughs> Emma's having a moment. I will tell you, dear readers, the rest of the story. <laughs> we, we, we're, uh, we're giving it to you in bits and pieces. Um, another thing that Brockmeyer talked about in the interview I did with him is that he has lived in Little Rock all of his life, and presumably he is still there, uh, despite occasional jaunts up to Iowa or other places to teach. Though I do not know. I have not, I have not spoken to him for a long time. Um, and when I asked him about why, he talked about the continuity of memory, about being able to walk through the streets of his life and feel connected, maybe again, uh, you know, this idea of a fine silver thread that we keep talking about. It's a beautiful phrase, but thinking to, to me, when I thought about well, the way he described living in Little Rock, I thought about him being able to sew together his life, to be able to walk down the past and present at all times. And the story collects the life of the mute in the way that he collects the parakeet. And you learn about the way he lived, the way he arranged the house, as you said, for his new companions, and how he gave those companions to other people in the town, that he would show up to festivals and to parties with the cages of a few parakeets and give them to people and give them instructions on how to treat them. That that reinforces the thing you said about cradling, because here's a person that in some ways, that is evoked in that beautiful story, fabulous way, that they are cut off in some way from the world, but they have found through care and love for something, a way to connect to give to the world. And some people in the city cherish the parakeet, some let them go, but he is a part of their life. And at the end of this story, which is at the end of his life, because Brockmeyer, in a way that has inspired me a lot, he collects lives in his collections of stories. His stories often tell the story of a life. There is one particular line where he does that in this story, not, you know, not just containing the man's life in the story, but he says... His grandparents died and later his parents. The long history of a lifetime fell into place behind him. There were no fancy words in that sentence. It does not dance around and ask you to look at it. But quietly, without show, like the mute, it gets on with reminding us how fleeting a life is. The story ends, it ends with the passing away of the mute. And Brockmeyer has throughout the story shifted perspective ever so slightly. It begins from the point of view of describing the city, and you're in a way in the townspeople perspective. And then you are in the perspective of the mute and his collection of parakeets. And then you are in, for a moment, for just a moment, you are in the point of view of the parakeets trying to make sense of this person who is taking care of them. And they begin to try to make sense the only way they know how, which is to mimic. And so they mimic the sounds of the man. And, and then we move into the mute's point of view again as he dies, and then we come back into the town and the town's understanding that they have lost something. And in their, in their search for what they have lost in going to the mute's house, they encounter the parakeets and all the sounds of the man that had never been able to sing now being sung in this great symphony. And that is just in itself, it's just perfectly poignant. But also from a craft thing, I think about what a fantastically simple structure that it is town, mute, parakeet, mute, town. Mm -hmm. And in that structure is a cradling. Mm -hmm. 
Another craft thing he does in this story, which seems so like you could miss it if you weren't looking for it or uh, thinking about how his paragraphs and his structure does so much work for him is as he's described the town and described the mute and described the mute's uh, relationship with the initial relationship with the parakeets he opens a paragraph when did he first start giving the birds away as presents and suddenly that question just expands the story into the man's relationship with the town uh, what does it mean it gives it this kind of juice that George Saunders talks about right you every, a story needs to stop at a gas station and fill up with juice every so often and that that point it expands the sto- the perspective of the story in a way that I find it fills it with energy particularly because it's in the form of a question that your mind immediately wants to fill in a lot of responses to it oh yeah I want to read that paragraph that you were talking about where the parakeets are making the sounds of the man's life In a thousand different tones, a thousand different inflections, they reproduced all the sounds of the mute's daily life, from the steady beat of his footsteps to the whistle of his coffee pot, to the slow, spreading note of his final breath. It sounded for all the world like a symphony. You know, we should be so lucky to have our lives shared so intimately or attended to so carefully as this man and his parakeets. And the thing that I take away from this story every time is... It's a story about paying attention, a story about what that means to live in an attentive way, to be paid attention to and to have the relationships that, the relationships, the knowledge, the safety, the, (laughs) I don't know, the engagement with another's life that paying attention can give you and the beauty that comes out of that. I don't know, I just want to read the whole story. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, oh, and this paragraph, and this one is beautiful as well, and I must read this. Luckily, this story is entirely online, and if you haven't read it by now, you should go read it. Oh, for sure. Better, you should print it out, and you should give it to someone you care about, and you should ask them to read it to you. Thanks for listening, readers. We have probably not managed to say all of the things about these two stories. Nor have we managed to discuss all of the stories that have so far existed in the world. So if you want to let us know your thoughts or recommend stories for us to read uh, on later episodes, you can find us on Twitter. We are at Storyological. Which is story. Like the word. O. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. You can follow Emma on Twitter. She is at E.G. Kosh. And you can follow Chris on Twitter. He is at Kuvals. If you want to keep up with various forms of storylogicalness, uh, what books Emma and I are reading, what little reviews I sample from my newsletter, Chris Reviews Everything. Uh... And when the latest episode, what oh, yes. stories we're reading? <laughs> well, I don't even put them ahead of time, but yes. Uh, and to make sure you know when the latest episode has arrived, you can sign up for our newsletter. Which is tinyletter.com slash storyological or you can go to our website and click on the the word newsletter that really, works just multiple yeah, i like how you've set that up multiple ways to do this thing and if you have enjoyed this episode and we hope you have please head over to itunes or your podcast distribution network of choice and leave us a review because that helps other people find us too and if you really like this episode or you just enjoy this podcast 
You can go to Patreon and support us at whatever, really, dollar amount you want. Though if you go above $5 a month, that would seem crazy. But you're welcome to it. There's no reward at that level. Uh, Something Em and I are going to do this year is record mini episodes that are very much like our holiday episodes, the ones that have just come out, where we talked about In Bruges and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. We're going to sort of scatter throughout the season these little episodes of us discussing movies or songs or whatever we feel like. And those we will put up for all of our Patreon people, no matter what they've, they've given. Uh, and of course, there's still... You know what I've just noticed yeah. is that in your accent, many and mini sound exactly the same. Mini and I episodes. got a bit scared and I was like, many episodes? How many episodes are we going to record? There you go. If you support us at a $3 a month mark, then you will also receive a newsletter from Chris where he reviews some amount of everything that he encounters. And for everything else, uh, links to past episodes, past interviews, gifts of appropriate and inappropriate nature, you can always find us at our home on the web. Storylogical.com. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. Like the stories I love most in the world that people tell about themselves or that people tell about aliens are the stories that respect the, the fault lines, both in people and in life. The ones that try to pretend, to, to fully pretend the gap doesn't exist. Like we watched Safety Not Guaranteed last night, which is a very sweet film. Mm-hmm. But there are some characters in that story, people in that story, that have some serious fault lines. And when I thought about Safety Not Guaranteed and the way those characters that are broken come together and try to make a life, and the way that it feels like the movie is skipping across huge consequences and costs that should come from these people getting together. I compared it to Park Chan-wook's film, I'm a Cyborg, but that's okay, where there is huge cost for the people in that movie who come together to try to tell stories and try to speak each other's language in a way that helps them cross that gap. Mm -hmm. There's huge costs and consequences of that choice, and it makes their bonding sweeter and more real, even as it makes it scarier. Right, scarier and more painful. And that I think there are many times in my life, like we've talked before how often I look for comfort in a story and you look for discomfort and maybe not <laughs> I, quite such a clean I way. I find but... comfort in the honest reckoning with discomfort. Yes, okay, sure. And and That's I'm... a much less neat sentence though. I think there are definitely times when I want a story to skip over that stuff and times where it feels like this, it feels like somebody standing with their hands over their ears and their eyes closed and just you know ignoring it in a way that feels uh damaging yeah i think my favorite way of ignoring it is at the end of the seventh episode of the second season of buffy the vampire slayer where giles and buffy have a conversation about how easy growing up is and which buffy asks giles does it get easier she wants to know does it get easier when you grow up yeah and he says i don't know what to tell you and she says lie to me (laughs) right so he tells her this beautiful obvious nonsense story about how as you get older you understand all the good guys wear white hats and the bad guys are distinguished by their curly mustaches and pointy horns at the end of which he says and everyone lives happily ever after and buffy smiles and says liar and i like that's that's the kind of lie i want the kind of lie the perfect unreckoning yes the perfect unreckoning that uh, like to me that that image is not of people covering their eyes or ears but maybe the two people are at the abyss and they just look up at the sky and and tell each other a story about living in the clouds that feels like it reinforces their understanding that there's this abyss in front of them right right 
but you don't have to. Just because you're standing on the edge of an abyss doesn't mean that you have to talk about it or look at it all the time. It doesn't have to consume you. You can just stand next to it and not look at it. Although as someone who gets vertigo, it is wildly compelling to, to look into that gap and be like, oh, feels mm. like it sucks you in. Yeah, it's true. It takes a certain kind of strength to look up at the sky. <laughs>